Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get into the second week of uh, King. Anybody excited? A few of us. Um, I'm being Matthew 2 again, if you want to find that in your Bibles or your mobile device, or if you don't have uh, those options, we'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, Matthew 2, King, you know, and I shared a little bit last Sunday, and by the way, our children did a great job last Sunday, but shared a little bit for a few moments about gold and uh, and that in reference to Jesus as king. And he's not just a king, but he's king of kings. There's never been a king anywhere near, like, close to who Jesus is. So Matthew 2, I'm going to read a portion. I read it in its entirety as far as this account um, last Sunday. If you want to, you can go to Elevation Indie YouTube or wherever you listen to podcast Elevation Indie, and you can find it and listen to uh, last Sunday's message. Picking up verse 7, the wise men have approached uh, the palace where Herod is. Says, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined, verse 7, from them what time the star appeared. There's a lot of calculating going on right here as he's thinking and strategizing. You can tell by what it says here. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So now he's practicing deception. It's not his intention at all. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, as you read this, you, and you see this here, you could maybe get lost a little bit in, well, what's all this mean? In fact, there's important details here that we could just gloss over and not catch. And I think with Christmas, with the Christmas narrative, the, the story that we receive and know about the birth of Christ, well, there's a lot that it's easy just to miss. I said last Sunday that I think so many times we get our Christmas theology from Christmas carols and the covers of Christmas cards, that we have a certain thing we believe about Christmas, but yet it may or may not be true could be legend, could be a myth, could be, it's just kind of been added in. There could have been somebody's idea. And, and then we miss the importance. Right? We, we miss out on, um, on the things that are biblical and scriptural and important about the birth of Christ. And because of all the, the busyness and the, the wrapping and all the trappings of Christmas, the lights and the, the festivities and the gatherings and the parties and the the, the good things that we enjoy doing, well, it can overshadow what Christmas is about, and it can help, it can keep, make us overlook what it's really about. And I think that uh, it's so important that we get to the details. I, was, I, I love history, and there's, there's a one account that I think probably, uh, well, so many, but there's one that I'm going to share this morning uh, about two, two brothers. Two brothers, uh, they were from Dayton, Ohio, and they were in Kitty Hawk. It was, on, it was on December 17th, 1903, that they sent word. They, they wired their sister, 
Now, probably you already know where I'm going. You probably know the story. Kitty Hawk is where where uh, first flight occurred, at least the first flight that we really recognize as that. And and it was Orville and Wilbur Wright, and they wired back to their sister Catherine and said, this is what the, what the, the text of the wire said, we have flown 120 feet. Now, by today's standards, that probably wouldn't be so great. You know, that's, that's, that's maybe out to one of the islands in, in the parking lot. It's not that great of a feat nowadays because we can fly all around the world. But then, well, nobody's done this. This is like revolutionary. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, that now you can go to the airport and you can get an airplane and go wherever you want uh, and, and don't even think about it hardly. Right? We just go do it. Buy the ticket and go. And, and, and it's so easy, but, but it all started, modern flight started with a couple of brothers in Kitty Hawk, and they sent the message. We've flown 120 feet, and then they added this little add-on, this little addendum to the message, we will be home for Christmas. Well, Catherine, knowing uh, a little bit about newspapers because her father, their father, Milton Wright, who was a pastor that, that had been in different areas of ministry around, one of them in Indiana, uh, had been in different churches over the years. Well, when he was in small towns, uh, multiple times he started a, a, a town newspaper and mild success at doing that. And so Catherine knew a little bit about newspapers, and, and so she took to the editor this message, gave him the message, and he read it. Same message I just told you. We have flown 120 feet. We will be home for Christmas. And he said this, isn't that wonderful that the boys are going to be home for Christmas? Now, now, the greatest part of the announcement, the greatest part of the text was not necessarily they're going to be home for Christmas. That's good. But that, but that may be one of the most, could be said, the singular most important achievement in the 20th century was, was flight. And he totally missed it because it was overshadowed by we'll be home for Christmas. And that's what happens much of the time during the Christmas season is we get a little caught up in all the stuff. And we may not, we may miss the greatest achievement of Christmas, and that is at a Savior, a Savior whose name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us, a Savior who would save his people from their sins has come. And that's what Christmas, without Jesus' birth, there'd be no Christmas, but because of his birth. And uh, Matthew, well, well, a star appears, and... Um, wise men come with, without much of, he doesn't give us all the backstory on any of this. Just like, boom, here it is. Right? It's not a, lot of, not a lot of commentary that he would give us on those. He just introduces us and moves on. And, 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 then, and I'm going to share a little bit about some of that today. But then the other thing, the other thing that happens is that he introduces us to the gifts that they brought. Gold. Again, I talked about it last week, frankincense and myrrh. And I'm going to deal with frankincense this morning. And I, I, I think that it's so important. Scholars, you know, they, they differ on when the wise men arrived. I'll tell you this. Here's what I know for sure. They arrived after he was born. Right? Now, the length of time and because of Herod's inquiry about the time the star appeared, there's some thought that, well, it could be much longer than just a day after he was born or that night because of the 
the house. Sometimes there's confusion on that, which doesn't mean much. Could have been Christmas morning when they got there. But, uh, but the gifts, well, the gifts, they're there, and, and there's some importance about it. In fact, one literary critic said that because of their placement at the end of the, of, of, of the story here, that that brings more significance on them. And I think that these gifts are certainly symbolic for us this morning, emblematic of something. But I, I would say this, that if we don't see the prophetic implication, we miss a lot if we don't see the prophetic implication. Frankincense. So I want to talk about it. If you're, if you're writing it this morning, we'll put it on the screen so you won't have to try to figure out how to spell it. Frankincense. Frankincense. Now, now it seems, seems a little strange to give this to a baby. You could think a baby rattle. You could think about one of those things that spin on top of the baby that you give one of those or or diapers or something. Frankincense, well, maybe it seems a little strange that you give frankincense. And we want to just dig into that for a minute. But before we do, I want to talk about the people who gave the gift, right? And, and understanding, I'll give you a little bit about where I'm going. Um, frankincense, right, it's, it's, it's a group of priests uh, from afar who brought the substance that the priest used in the Jewish temple um, to someone who would, fulfill the role of a priest. Now, the men who gave it, well, I, I shared it last week and just give you this word again. The Greek word is magoi, where we get the word magi from, but magi may not mean much. There's not a good word that coming out of, out of the Greek into the English that really gives us who they are. In fact, it would take maybe 10 words to get that one word and make it right, because it's, it's wise men, what's well, the best when they're, when they're bringing it out of Greek into English, the best they could do was wise men. But you could misuse that and say wise guys, and it'd be a whole different thing, right? Right? Wise men, the word magi. Uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, and I'll give you, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff, and then we'll, and then we'll, we'll, we'll push into what, how this impacts us today. But, but Herodotus, a Greek historian, he said this about them, that they were a priestly caste of Medes from the Medo-Persian Empire. They were this small group, a tribe of priests that was a part of the, the Parthians that, that became a part of the Medes um, in, in this ancient empire. They were, they, were just, they were a small group within a large group of priests. Now, it's similar to in Israel, there was the, priest, the priesthood, which was the tribe of Levi. So there's a little bit of a similarity that, that among all the tribes of Israel, there was one tribe that was the priest, and that was the Levitical priesthood, the Levites. And so there's a little similarity there. Um, these these uh, wise men, these magi, they, they maintained influence on several empires, the Babylonian, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. And at this writing, we read it here, the Roman Empire. And it was this hereditary group, this hereditary tribe, that you, you couldn't just say, well, I want to be a magi. I want to be a part of the magi. I want to be part of that group that, that, that is uh, considered wise men. I want to, I want to be a part of that, that, that group. You just couldn't do that because you had to be born into it. You were born into all the stuff, and, and you'd learn all the knowledge and all the ways of um, that group because you were born into there. And, and part of their faith system, their ancient faith system, was that they were monotheistic. Like us, they believed in one God. Now, that's important because I'm going to tell you about Daniel here in a moment. Daniel's trying to help them to learn um, 
his faith system, and so that they're a monotheistic um, tribe, well, that's kind of important because it helps them to understand this. Their primary ele element of worship was fire. Scholars are not sure necessarily why. They believe that God originated fire, and because of that, it was a gift, and so somehow that evolved to, into them worshiping. So in, they had an altar built with a perpetual flame that never went out, eternal flame. It continued to burn. And they had another altar where they would take fire from that perpetual flame, and they would offer animal sacrifices. Again, well, there's some commonality there with, with the, the, uh, the faith of, of, the Juda of Judaism and the Israelites. And they were also, they had labeled some animals unclean and some clean. Again, if you know a little bit about Old Testament, you're like, okay, I see a picture here. And they were very meticulous about how they handled the dead. Again, some commonality there. Genesis 5.11 is important for us to get. You may jot it down. You can read it later. But um, some of you will remember the writing on the wall. The, the, the king is throwing the big banquet, the big ball, the big party. He's taking the, the instruments out of the Jewish temple, and he's using those for purposes that are not sacred and holy. And God just allows his finger to write on the wall. And everybody's in the uproar, the king especially. And his wife, the queen, says, there's one in the kingdom who possesses great knowledge and great ability. And your father, your father, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, placed him over all of the magi, made him chief over all the magi. And, and, then, and then Daniel lists out all the, the, the soothsayers and the, and the astrologers and all the other folks, that, the magicians and all the folks that would fit in there. But your father put him over. And, and, then, and then there's this language where the queen here, this pagan queen, shares that he has knowledge, some have said, like the gods. So Daniel's been very respected and revered, and Daniel's been made chief. I think it's important to understand because of these magi showing up, they show up at the birth and they ask for, here's the question, where is this king that's born king of the Jews? Well, why in the world would a group coming from Persia, coming from probably an area near Iran, come all that way looking for a king of the Jews? Why would that even matter? It's because five, 600 years before, Daniel was made the chief over them, and he's instructing them. And I think it's important that, you, that we understand uh, how powerful these were. They, they weren't kings, as the song says, but they were kingmakers. In fact, if you change the song, you could sing it, you know, what is it? We three kings. Uh, we unknown number of kingmakers have come bearing gifts. Get a little longer. The songwriters probably wouldn't, wouldn't uh, agree. But, but to be more accurate, Right? They're, they're seeking a king of the Jews. Why would that even matter? But because Daniel had been in a place to lead and instruct them. And I think it's important that you understand that, that um, for uh, this group of people, well, they were literally king makers. They advised kings, monarchies. In fact, um, here's what we know. No Persian could become king unless he met two, two conditions. He had to be master he had to master the spiritual disciplines of the Magi, and he had to be approved and crowned by the Magi. 
They were the kingmakers. You couldn't be king without their approval, without, without them giving an okay on it, without their stamp of approval, without, and that, that would mean this, without their anointing to be king, you couldn't be king in Persia. The Magi literally were kingmakers. And if you see it so well, um, this idea that they had so much influence, it's called the law of the Medes and Persians. If you read in Esther chapter 1, Daniel chapter 6, you see that before the king made a decree, he consulted with the Magi, and the Magi gave him instruction. So then when he made a decree, because once he made a law, the law of the Medes and Persians meant this, that it was going to stick, that even the king couldn't break his own law, that this was the law but before he ever made that, he consulted with these magi. And 6th century B.C., King Darius, he decided to make kind of the, 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 the faith of the people Zoroastrianism. And that was their national religion. And so conveniently, the magi, most of them converted to be a part of that because the king said this is what the... And, and so, Kenny, once you get this picture, there's a monotheistic ancient way they had there's Daniel's influence with the God of the Bible, and now there's Zoroastrianism. I, I say that because it's kind of a mixed bag. And, and I also want you to know that there were Jewish people besides Daniel that were there in, in Babylon. There, there were, in fact, uh, the uh, nation of Israel for many years now has been doing and been in an effort to locate lost peoples that were Jewish and to get them back to Israel. In fact, they found uh, tribes in India, in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, where 700 years before Christ, when they were carried away, because that's what, that's what conquering kingdoms would do. They would take the people there, and they would take them to a foreign land, so they would be uh, totally disoriented and couldn't be a threat to them, and so they'd move them. And so they found, they found pockets of people for 2,700 years that have continued to practice their faith. They found uh, things that look much like the prayer shawl that people are using in India, in a certain portion and part of India. Uh, in um, Pakistan, they found a group that identifies with Muslims, and yet everything they do, dietary and everything they do in their faith practice, separate from the other Muslims, they're they are worshiping a god, um, not called Jehovah, but very similar to that word in a different language. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you something. For, for this book to finalize, it's kind of important. And for the Jewish people, where well, they're thinking, we're looking for the Messiah for the first time. They're still waiting on the first king. They don't realize that Jesus is him. And so they're waiting. And so they're trying to get prepared so they have all their tribes in place when he comes. And just know this, that in all of those places that I just mentioned and, and others, they carried their faith for all those years. Don't you know they didn't influence some people? And so here come these wise men. I told you all that to tell you this, that when they come to find the baby, the one that's born king of the Jews, I think they were some of the people that through the years continued to seek after the God that Daniel talk about, talked about, the God that Daniel spoke of, the God that Daniel trained them, uh, trained them in, the, the scriptures that Daniel spoke from. Because it says this in, in uh, uh, Mark I'm sorry, Matthew 2, verse 11, when they, when they worshiped him, when they prostrated themselves before him, the Greek word is proskuneo, which, which is a very strong word of devotion and worship typically used of the true God. 
Not, not, Matthew wouldn't have used this word if it was just worship, them worshiping in, in, in some pagan way or some other way, but he uses a word that is, is connected with worship of the one true God. I think it's amazing this detail of them coming, these people that are bringing this gift. But why this gift? Why this gift? What's the purpose of this gift? What's the meaning of this gift? What is frankincense, first of all? It's a very particular resin from a very particular tree, a pure kind of incense, highly prized and sought after, very expensive. In fact, today, it's still very expensive. In, in the box that you received, there was a little bit of frankincense oil. Uh, it's got a beautiful smell, uh, very aromatic. Um, it's from a tree in the Arabian Peninsula, and frankincense appears in the Bible 17 times. And most of those times, it's associated with the priesthood of Israel. It was used for priest by priest. It's for them when, when they were anointed or ordained into the priesthood by them in the mill or grain offering. In fact, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 2 says this, He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, one of whom shall take from, from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So, so the priest then would use frankincense. It was for a priest. They were anointed by it with, with frankincense, and they would use it in this offering. You see, I believe one of the things that the, the magi, the wise men understood was, yes, he's king, we present him a gold because that's what kings receive, but he's also a priest. They understood enough about his coming to understand that he was a priest. Now, it smelled good, but, you know, I think God, I don't think he needed that because he created it. Anything that smells good, God created it. Are you with me? It's not like he's lacking in the, that he needs to have, you know, you to go to Yankee Candle or that other place over to Bed Bath and Body Works and get him a candle. He didn't need that. He doesn't even need the, he doesn't even need the uh, frankincense. And when they talk about it being a, a, um, uh, an offering and a sweet aroma to the Lord, I think it's more talking about this. It's because they did it in obedience as thanksgiving to the Lord. That's what's a sweet-smelling savor for him. And Paul, I think the Apostle Paul, um, he tries to give us some insight into this offering when he wrote this in Philippians 4.18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. In other words, obedience before the Lord, thanksgiving before the Lord, is, is a sweet aroma to him. When we're obedient, when we're thankful for what he's doing and what he's done. Psalm 141 verse 2 said, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. It's this idea that, that when we offer prayer and when we offer thanksgiving, that it's a sweet aroma that goes up before the Lord. In fact, some of you right now, because somebody prayed for you and it went up before the Lord as a sweet aroma, he's aware and he's answered those prayers, and that's why you're here today. 
Your life of, of, of knowing Jesus didn't happen just because you thought it was a good idea and you had some mental assent. It's because somebody prayed for you and that prayer went up before the Lord. Somebody in advance thanked God for, for the relationship you would have with him and it went up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling aroma. Somebody was committed to do that. And we're, we're entering into a time, uh, January the 1st. Anybody know when January 1st is? It's, it's a week after Christmas, right? It's the first, it's the first Sunday. Now, 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 it's a new year, 2023. Can you believe that? I thought by 2023 we'd be like in flying cars or something, you know? We passed the Jetsons and we still don't have what they have. A whole nother tangent I don't need to get on. But anyways, January 1st. Here, here's what I know as a pastor. First Sunday of the year, no matter if it's the 5th or the 3rd or whatever, it's always a low Sunday. People kind of brushing off the Christmas hangover from all the energy spent during that time, and, and they just don't get here sometimes. But now with it being January 1st being on a Sunday, well, that even makes it tougher because all of your festivities on January, I'm sorry, the December, the last day of 2022, well, you, you may feel like, I just need to sleep in on Sunday. And I'm saying, no, you don't. And here's why. We're entering into a, to a and I, you know, I've done, I've done things first year before many times. In fact, Kim and I, for years, we've done a 21-day, I'm not saying this in a boastful way, we've just done it for years, probably 20 years, 21-day fast in, in um, January. And I, I just would say this, that I'm just, was praying, and I felt like this is, and I I'm, not, I'm not a super mystical person, so don't, I'm more practical many times than I am mystical, so I don't want to lose you on this. So, but I was praying, and I was, Lord, what do we need to do this year to start the year off so we, so we can help people walk in the victory God has? And first Wednesday, I shared a little bit about this, that, that victory's already been won for you, but many times as believers, we don't walk in it. Like we, 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 we live beneath the privilege that God has for us so many times. We fight things that he's already won for us. How do, we, how, do we, how do we help people to walk in that victory? How do we help them to, to, to not do this? Because here's, here's what we have the temptation to do. That we apply ourselves for a certain amount of time, and then we just fall back to our old ways. Anybody just willing to say, yes, you know what I'm talking about, say Yes. Right, that, that you get victory maybe in an area over a habit or addiction or something that you're dealing with or a problem or a hurt or, or, or something that happened to you or something that you did and you get victory, but then you find yourself battling with it all over again like you never had victory before. And then sometimes it's hard once you've fallen to get back up. And, and what I'm saying is I want to help you get in the victory that Jesus has provided so that you don't have to have that happen. And so starting January 1, we're doing 100 days to victory. 100 days to victory. That's 100. Never done 100. And when I, I felt like the Lord dropped that in my spirit, I went through the scriptures. I'm look, looking for 100. Like, Lord, what does that mean? Is some kind of, I don't know any significance, but, but, you know, I don't know all things. And so what does that mean? And You know what I found? Absolutely nothing. And I thought, is victory the right word? It sounds really old school. I want to help people just receive this and not back off because they think, well, victory, I don't need victory or I don't, whatever, and, and all that. And, and 
And then it just kept coming back to 100 days to victory. January 1, the first day, April the 10th, day after Easter. What I'm believing is that our church, some of you have been struggling with some stuff, some of you have been stuck in some places, that as you enter into a time of obedience and thanksgiving, offering up through your prayers a sweet aroma to the Lord, you'll be made more aware of the victory that he has provided for you. And then on April 10th, it'll be a different you than January 1. And so we're going to journey through the New Testament together. We're going to give you, we're going to give you the places that you can read. Some people tell me sometimes, they, they say this, they say, I'd like to read through the Bible, or I'd like to read through the New Testament. We're going to, give you the, we're going to help you do it. Two and a half, three, some days maybe one, just, just one chapter, but two and a half, three chapters a day. In 100 days, you can, you can get all the Gospels, you can get the, 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 the New Testament book of history, the book of Acts about church history. You can read the letters that were written to the church. You can dig into that apocalyptic revelation book that everybody's like, oh, you can, you can get that one. And, and then not just mark it off that you've done it. It's really, it's, it's not so much that you get through the word, it's that the word gets through you. We, we believe this, that if you spend 100 days in the word, you'll be changed. And we'll be changed together. I can't wait to meet the new Elevation Church on April the 10th. Watch out. But not only being in the Word, because being in the Word alone, well, that's good, but, but times of prayer. And so Saturdays, starting that first Saturday in, in January, I'm going to say the 6th, 7th, there it is, the 7th of January, we'll start 9 a.m., and every Saturday throughout this we'll have an opportunity for prayer. And I'm not looking for everybody to be here at prayer, but you can. I am looking for everybody to engage. So on January 1, we'll give you uh, ways that you can engage. You don't have to engage every way, but ways that you'll engage. And I'm looking for, here it is, 100% participation. Now, I'm not going to follow you home, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, like, you know, harass you about it. I'm just saying, if you willingly say, I'm going to participate that's what is going to produce victory. And some targeted fasting where we say, hey, we're going to fast for this in this amount of time, and we're going to see some victory in some certain areas, some gatherings together like this that are going to be significant. And what we're hoping and what we're believing for is that there is going to be a, a sweet aroma that ascends before the Lord that he's pleased in and that he begins to answer and reply in our lives and in our church. Anybody with me say Yes. And I'm telling you, I'm pumped up, and I'm careful not to get too excited up here this morning about it, but I'm pumped up about 100 Days to Victory because of what it's going to produce in some folks' lives. There's even some people that you may know right now that you, you need to get them here, and we all need to be here on Jan January 1. You know, you can sleep in and come to this service. Some of you already do that. So we, we do it for you. We do it for you. And so encourage you praying, thinking about it. And God may speak to you about how do I need to engage before we ever give you a way to engage. Because we're doing it together, it's going to create a, a, a synergy, a unity, an agreement that I believe God's going to be blessed with when we do this. Third point this morning, the priestly ministry of the one who received the gift. So it's good to know the people that gave the gift and what the purpose of the gift was, but it's also important that we understand, well, they're giving it to him. See, they're giving it to him because Jesus, one of the roles that Jesus would play in his, in his life on earth and in his, in, in his um, eternal existence is that of high priest. Jesus is called the great high priest 
11 times in the book of Hebrews. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer in the book of Hebrews wants us to get this, that he's our great high priest, that we have a representative that goes before God the Father for us. In fact, that's what a priest is. What a priest does is a priest represents people before God. The priest goes before God for the people. Now, it's important that we understand this, that, that, that Jesus made the best high priest simply because he's God. So from God's perspective, he understands what God desires and what, God's want, what God wants. And then when we read in Hebrews 14, verses 14 and 15, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we, and yet without sin. goes on to say, let us, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That, that Jesus took on skin became God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. John's gospel in the first chapter, I think it's verse 14, says, says that, that he came and dwelt. The, Hebrew, the, the Greek word there coming to us is tabernacle or uh, pitched a tent, with, lived with us. Jesus came and he experienced everything that you've experienced or will experience. You're not going through a struggle or a pain, or a heartache, or, or, or abuse, or, or any such thing that you could, you could list this morning that he hasn't already dealt with. He's dealt with the temptation that you're facing. Jesus. He's tempted. He knows what it is to walk on this earth and be in your place. He knows. It makes him the greatest priest of all time and throughout all history because he understands it from God's perspective and he understands it from our perspective. And the, reader, the, the writer in Hebrew wanted us to get that. And also to get this, that, that he's not just a, a priest uh, after Aaron's priesthood, but a Melchizedekian priest. Some of you may remember the Melchizedek in the Old Testament that Abraham spoke with. Uh, Hebrews 7.17 says this, For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Maybe the writer in Hebrews borrowed from Psalms 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He didn't say Jesus is a, is a, Levitical, a Levitical priest or that he's from um, the tribe of Aaron, so he'll be a part of the Levitical priesthood because of that. No, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, uh, in the form of Jesus, always was and always will be. There's no end to his priesthood. Now, now, you know, if they're going to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem and they'll start back, they'll start. In fact, they've already ordered the stones. There's a great belief they have the Ark of the Covenant. There's, there's at least five red heifers that are spotless and without blemish that they need to start uh, temple worship again. So they'll, they'll do that. And there will be some Levites that are in there serving and, and doing that. Well, I'm just going to be honest with you. That's kind of over and done with. It ended with Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. But for the, but for the order of Melchizedek, well, that continues. 
Uh, it, say, it says this in Hebrews 10, 12, but this man, he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You'll find it in Mark 16, 19 as well, that he sat down. So just understand this, the priest in the tabernacle or in the temple, they don't sit down. They're always, they're on their feet doing stuff. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a sitting down job. In fact, you ever been on, on a job doing something and it was hard kind of work and, and somebody's doing it with you and all of a sudden they sit down? And you're like, you want to say, or maybe you say, depending on how well you know them or how frustrated you are, hey, the job's not done. It's not time for a break. We're still working. Get back up. Because you don't sit down until the job's done. Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work is finished. He's already, he's already been the lamb that was offered, and he's been the priest that offered the lamb. When he hung on the cross, he wasn't just the lamb. He was also the priest that was presenting the sacrifice to God. Now, Hebrews 7.25, the New American Standard Bible says, Therefore he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He ever liveth, KJV, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Right now. You can almost say as a magi, he's seated in the king's chair. Only in, in the Persian Empire, only person that sat there would have been, would have been a magi. He's seated there, but not as a magi, as a priest. As a priest that finished his job. And now, right now, today, this moment, he's seated there making intercession for you and I, representing us before his father. Now, Job, in Job 93, Job was concerned and troubled because there wasn't an arbitrator. There wasn't, there wasn't a mediator for us. And he, he said it like this, who can place his hand on both? Can reach to God and reach to man. Job said, we don't have anybody. First Timothy 2.5 said, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That Jesus is that mediator, that go-between, that, that middleman, if you, if you will, that is in between taking our needs, taking us before the Father. The, the early church fathers, they struggled with how do, we, how, do we, how do we, what's a term that would describe Jesus? And they couldn't figure out because some of them thought, well, he's, he's purely God, and others thought, well, he's purely man. Right? I mean, when Jesus, when Mary came to him at the wedding and said, hey, we're out of wine, Jesus, can you take care of this? And Jesus was human enough that he's a little frustrated with his mom. But he was God enough that he changed the water into wine. Are you with me? And so when, when the early church fathers look at this, they say, well, is, is, he, is he God or is he? He, he, was, he was man enough that on the boat he was taking a nap during the storm but he was God enough when they woke him up that he said, peace be still, and the storm ceased to be. I'm just telling you, he was man enough that at the tomb of Lazarus, he shed tears and he wept because he was human, but he was God enough that he said, Lazarus, come forth. And had he not put Lazarus there, every body and every grave would have came forth because he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. And the early church fathers said, well, what do we, is he man, is he God? What, what? And they came up, they took two words and put them together, theos and anthropos, God and man, and called him the theanthropos. That he's the God-man. What better priest could there ever be? What better middleman could there ever be for you and I? 
And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's a pretty good man, middle man. I mean, when we read through the New Testament, you'll get probably, I don't know, sometime in March, be in the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter. Maybe that should be a one-chapter day. Book of Philemon. Paul's writing the letter to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. He had servants and slaves. And Onesimus was a guy that had escaped. But in his escaping, he stole stuff from, it appears that he stole stuff from Philemon. And so Paul writes this letter. He said, and, and, and whatever is missing, whatever has been taken, whatever loss you've suffered, Paul says, charge it to my account. Just put it on me. When Jesus came, all the stuff, all the sin, all the, all the things that, that, that we wish we'd never done or, or that are in our past, or maybe you're dealing with something right now, that, that what Jesus said on the cross is, take what they've done, charge it on my account. Go ahead and hang me on this cross. These nails aren't holding me here. It's because of my love for people. And I'm saying, charge their sin to my account. Just count, count, count me as guilty for them. Jesus never been anyone that has done or could do that for you. And he's cheering us on today. You know that. Joyce Heatherly, uh, she's passed away now about a year ago, but she was a great Christian speaker and, and uh, author. And she, she talked about the idea of balcony people, the people on the balcony, they're cheering you on, and basement people. The people in the basement, they're trying to bring you down. You're a critic, you know, because haters are going to hate, right? And she talked about both of them. And I think it's important that you understand that Jesus, he's the ultimate balcony person. He ascended to the balcony of heaven where he, where he talks and dialogues and converse, is in conversation with his father about us. And I think, I really think it's, the, the desire, the passion, the heart's cry for every human being to have some connection with God. They may not describe it that way. They may, they may try to, they, they may deny that totally. And yet, I remember reading the story about Hitchin, the atheist who debated so many. It was just, you know, just filled with vitriol when he would, he would debate Christians, Christian leaders and theologians, and he'd just come out so mean-spirited. And one guy said it was in their journey together way out west in a car going to a debate that Hitchin, who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer with no way to turn, was over flipping through the Bible, reading it. And he looked at him, he said, it's hard for me to understand how God can be so just and want righteousness, and yet offer grace. And he said, I love the God of the New Testament. And Hitchin, who had been an atheist, deep within inside, had a desire to say, I want a relationship with the God of grace. I'm saying I think every human being has that. And Jesus, well, he's, he's the bridge. He's the bridge builder for you and I. Some of my... Former recovering Catholics will probably understand this a little bit, but in the Latin, there's a word, pontifex. It means priest. 
Now, they don't know how it got into Latin for sure. Uh, they, they think it came from the area of Tuscany where there was a, a group of people before the Romans. And, and they've tried, scholars have tried to, I like to study words sometimes. And, and uh, I spent four years of my life learning Latin. I got to use it sometime. And, and so in trying to understand that word, They've come up with all these ideas. Well, you know, maybe they really meant something and it became that. Or, or maybe Pontifex becoming a priest, you know, may, maybe it was just this and this happened. That's how it got. Because what Pontifex means is bridge builder. It literally means one who builds a bridge. That's the word they have for priest in Latin. Well, you know what? I really think somebody way back understood what the role of a priest was. It's to be the bridge that goes between us and God so that we have someone, an advocate, a mediator, a go-between, a middleman that stands in before us and God, Jesus. And you don't need any other man now. You got Jesus. You got Jesus. January 22nd, 1930, the New York Times uh, printed this. Printed this, this little um, information that they had received. It was the day before that King George of England was going to, he was announcing in public address uh, the, that they were, England was going to war with Germany. And so they, they were going to do it live in England and in America and Canada. And they had CBS, uh, it, was, it was WJZ in New York. They were going to be the link where that address came through. It was going to go out to 49 other radio stations. This is 1930. It's like live stream on radio, and they were going to have a live speech from King George pumped to over a million people, which is a pretty big deal then. And just before, moments before it was to go live, a cable somehow was cut, snapped there in the place where they were going to do it, and it was like, what do we do now? It's, he's getting ready to speak, and we're, we're on the hook for doing this. And there was a guy who was a junior control operator, almost like an intern, Harold Vivian. He grabbed a hold of both of those and held them. They say he held them for 20 minutes. One article I read about this said it was 250 volts. I don't know. They said he did have tingling in his feet, which I can imagine that would be a case. For 20 minutes, he held the two till they could get another wire ran. While the king made his address, and because of him doing this, the king's address ran through him and went to all these people in North America. Now, that's what Jesus did. Heaven's voice transmitted, transmitted, through the person of Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, he was holding both together so that you and I could get the message of the king and that we could have eternal life and that we would know there's, there is someone that will go to God for us. Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This morning, you may feel like you don't have anything. You have Jesus. His arms are still outstretched just like they were on the cross. And he's saying, come to me. If you labor, if you feel burdened, if you feel distressed, if you feel like you can't make the next step, if you feel like you can't find your way, if you feel like you're walking in darkness, there is a light, and his name is Jesus. And he's the one that can take your burden before the Father. And there can be a change in your life.